0: Well, welcome to church this, mo- this morning. It's good to see you all. Um, today we're actually starting a two-part um, series on communion. Uh, the Lord's Table is what we've named it. Um, anyway, it's going to be, uh, I-, I think it's going to be really, really helpful. Uh, this is going to be two parts that we're going to do today. We're going to really concentrate on what I think is the historical context of the Lord's Table and its connection to the Passover, and then next week we're going to be looking at what should actually happen when we partake of communion, when we go to the Lord's table. Um, One of the most important elements that we do weekly here at L2 is communion. Um, We practice it weekly. Uh, Some people have actually asked, why do you do it all the time? And I can tell you your church background when you asked me that because a lot of churches have decided, well, okay, we're going to do it once a month or even once a quarter. Um, But Jesus actually had a lot to say about it. He said, I want you to do this whenever you gather. And that's why we started doing it. Um, Probably 2006, we started doing it weekly. And there's a lot of different backgrounds of people in this room. Um, Our upbringings, the churches we went to, the things that we've kind of learned um, they kind of cross in a lot of different ways and so we're hoping that this series is going to be able to really open up the meaning of this what this part or this element of the service means each and every week when we do it um, now the lord's table in roman catholic circles as well as protestant circles it, it it's held in a very interesting place both the protestants and the catholics Consider it a means of grace, which means it's a very important part of what God has said should be an element of the Christian life. In other words, if you're not engaging in communion in, on a regular basis in a meaningful way, your life is not going to have in it all that it should have in it. I know that's a huge statement. Now, to, to make a kind of a, a, a super generalization, um, if you come from a Roman Catholic background, I think Roman Catholic circles tend to overestimate the meaning and the power of the table. Um, if you come from a Protestant circle, uh, Protestant churches throughout your life, um, I can tell you that as Protestants, most of us have, uh, we underestimate the power of the table. And so hopefully we're going to bring some kind of some commonality to our thinking through this series. Um, Today what I'm going to do is look at first the origin of the Lord's table and then its meaning. And I think by doing that, we're going to establish a good foundation that we're going to be able to build off next week. So I'm really glad you're here. Um, let's go ahead and open this first, this first point, the origin of the Lord's table. Now, if you've been around church at all, you know that it's called different things. Even to call it the Lord's table is different than uh, some people would call it the Lord's Supper. Both of those ideas denote kind of a family gathering, where you're sitting around the table eating together. Um, In some places it's called communion, which I oftentimes will refer to it as. And the idea of communion is conveying to us this this idea of community, not just simply between us and God, but between all of us together. And so communion carries that idea. Um, It's also called the Eucharist. The Eucharist, that term itself means thankfulness. And so that one is pointing that, all three of those those, uh, those titles are pointing us to an important aspect of, of the whole communion table or the whole idea. There's elements that are coming out in those meanings. And as important as those words are and as rich as the meaning they convey to us, they, they really don't do justice to what we're gonna look at today. In other words, I think many of us are guilty of never seeing just how much this table is associated to the old the old testament. Um, and the Bible actually requires of us the this this idea that we would understand the Passover so that we can understand communion. Now, in verses seven and eight, you have two times it says Then it came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. Five times in the verses that you heard Catherine read, five times Luke wrote the title Passover. And yet many times we have never really investigated the connection between the two. So we're going to take some time this morning to do that (coughs) and to consider that. Now, The the historical context of the Passover is one that, that I'm going to kind of do it briefly this morning, but to to really grasp that significance, we have to go back to the book of Exodus and the first 12 chapters in the book of Exodus that record the institution of the Passover and particularly the events that led up to chapter 12. And there you have the people of God are, they're being held captive in Egypt they're living under very cruel, harsh conditions by a Pharaoh that hid, was like a rogue. And he was, he was doing everything he could to keep the people of Israel oppressed. And they cry out to God, and God answers them. He sends a deliverer to them in the name of Moses. And Moses, his life is broken into three parts. The first 40 years of Moses' life was lived in Pharaoh's palace. And the second 40 years is in this kind of a wilderness experience, and then at 80, he spent, he's sent back for the last part of his life, and that's when God sends him back. But right before he does, in chapter 3, Moses, God appears to Moses in the form of a burning bush, but it's on fire, but it's not being consumed. And God speaks to Moses in chapter 3, and he says, you need to take off your sandals, because this this, uh, this ground you're standing on is, is holy ground. Now, what takes place after that is really interesting because after that encounter, God direct, directs Moses to go both to the people of Israel and back to Egypt, to Pharaoh, and tell Pharaoh, you need to let my people go and tell Israel, you need to follow me. And we're told that Moses, when he first hears that, says, I, I, I can't do this. How in the world am I going to go back and convince them what you're telling me? What authority do I have to do this? And so Moses is hesitant, and God tells him, he said, Look, I'm going to be with you, um, and I'm going, to lead, I'm going to lead you. He basically says, You need to go, and let me take care of it. And so he goes back, and what you have when he goes back to, to Egypt is... A, a, a season where you have this drama that is being built ultimately there are there are ten plagues that are going to take place that God grants to Moses this capacity to make these amazing miracles happen and when he first goes back very quickly the, the magicians in Pharaoh's court they can duplicate it but very quickly their abilities to emulate these miracles go away Now, the first nine are very interesting because you have an escalating drama building. Every time Moses would do a miracle, Pharaoh would be able to say, okay, take, take those people and take them to the mountain your God says to go. But no sooner did those words come off the lips of Pharaoh, he would change his mind and he would hold on to them again. And throughout the story, it says that God kept hardening the heart of Pharaoh which is really interesting. A lot of people stumble over that. But ultimately, I believe it's because God was showing Israel that their deliverance from Egypt wasn't the grace of Pharaoh. In fact, Pharaoh would do... He'd destroy his nation trying to hold them. Now, when you come to the last, the last of these 10 plagues, it's the worst one of all. Because it, and God tells Moses that he, he's, going to, he's actually going to... It involves the destruction of the firstborn sons of, of of the humans in Egypt, as well as the animals. He said, "I'm going to kill every firstborn son." And so, ultimately, God is bringing this convergence. It's what's interesting that the people of Israel were living in Goshen, and there was a darkness that would come, and it wouldn't. It was light in Goshen. There would hail would fall, and it would fall everywhere in Egypt, but in Goshen. But this last plague is a plague in which God says. You need to pay attention because either a lamb will die or a son will die. And you need to decide what you're going to do. And it was in this last plague that this drama of the Passover was instituted. And Israel was given a remarkable amount of instruction of what they needed to do in order to survive this death angel that God would send throughout Egypt. Now, it's really important for us. I, I, I want to read this passage to you from Exodus chapter 12, and it's verses 1 to 13. And I want you to listen carefully to what it was that God instructed Moses in and what, what He said. Uh, Exodus 12, beginning in verse one. It said, "The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, "This month shall be for you the beginning of the month of, of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you." So there's a whole calendar. Was ordered around this institution of the Passover. He said, Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of the month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old, you may take You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, so for, they were to keep this lamb with them for four days and when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel um, shall kill their lambs at twilight, then they shall take some of the blood and put it on uh, the two doorposts in the little of the house in which they in, in which they eat it they shall eat the flesh that night roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water but roasted its head and its legs and its inner inner parts you shall not let you, you shall let none of it remain until morning anything that remains until the morning you shall burn in this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand you shall eat it in haste it is the lord's passover for i will pass through the land of egypt that night and i will strike all the firstborn in the land of egypt both man and beast and on all the gods of egypt i will execute judgments i am the lord the blood shall be a sign for you on the house where you where you are and when i see the blood i will pass over and, not, and no plague will befall you uh, to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And so the sign of this ritual was a sign of deliverance. And what's interesting is that the lamb had to die or a son was going to die. And what you begin to see in this is that God is, is actually setting people up to be delivered from him. And theologically, you begin to grasp the statement where not only are we being saved by God, but we're being saved from God, just like in the Passover. And that meaning converges with so, such intensity that it, it, it causes some people some, some, some struggles because they're thinking, well, why can't God just forgive? Why can't God just let it go? I can hear my granddaughter singing that song right now. Um, <laughs> my wife has a rendition of it too. But um, <laughs> oh, that's going to kill my, 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 my concentration. Um, but but you, you have something in going, happening there, that God is, he's working throughout those 11 chapters, building this crescendo in which it's him, it's him that's going to kill. It's his death angel that's going throughout the land. And now those people aren't safe in Goshen. Not merely because they're in Goshen. They need to conform and comply to the instructions. You take this lamb and at twilight you slit its throat you take its blood you put it on the sides and on the top of the doorpost. And if I see the blood you're safe. If I don't, you're not. The next day Pharaoh drives them from the land. And so this connection to the Passover is, you might imagine, it's so replete with meaning, yet many times we have never made the connections. So the second point, I just want to be able to show you the meaning of the Lord's table in regard to this. When Jesus celebrated the final, his final Passover with his disciples, he departed from the standard liturgy in the middle of the meal, now, we saw five times Luke records, this was about the Passover. Jesus said, go and get make it ready because we're going to have the Passover together. But in the middle of the dinner, he departs from this very liturgical process that the Jews had actually added a lot to it by the time the first century came around. And it was in the middle of it that Jesus begins to change it. And the first change that he did is that, The bread, he added new meaning to the Passover celebration as he took the bread and he put this new significance in it, which would have been astounding for a Jewish mind to process every year of your life. The calendar was ordered according to this institution. And then Jesus alters it. And we see in verse 19, he says, he took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So he changed the bread. The second thing he did is he changed the blood. And we see in verse 20, he said, Likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. In essence, Jesus was saying, I am the Passover. I am the Paschal Lamb. It's me. And the suffering that I'm about to do is depicted in that picture that you've known ever since you were a child. It all pointed to me. And so there's this amazing shift. And in their minds, they're thinking, all right, the, in the Passover, we had to take the blood and mark it on the doorpost. And what Jesus was basically saying is the door of your life Better be marked by me, or you're going to fall under the calamity of the wrath of God. And so he altered the he altered the bread, he altered the blood. And the third thing that only only a Jew a Jewish mind familiar with the Passover would have grasped this part of it, and it's it's very rarely kind of let out as you might think that there's there's a lot. of the meaning that's corresponding throughout the Passover in the the Lord's table. But this part, the expectation, is a part that eludes many of us. And you have something in it. that In Exodus 12 and verse 11 is where you get this. It says, this is God speaking to Israel. He said, In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It's the Lord's Passover. What do you think he was doing? You see, that was the night before Israel would go free. And it was punctuated by this institution of the Passover. And he basically said, I want you ready. I want you expecting me to lead you. I want you prepared to go. All your bags packed, and you eat the meal in a hurry because I'm going to lead you out. Now, what corresponds to that is one of the most remarkable statements, I think, that you find about salvation in the New Testament. And a a real interesting correspondence to this, when when our children were 12, we all, we had a rule in our house, when they were 12, they started reading McShane's reading list, and so they if you if you followed it throughout the whole year, you would read through your whole Bible once, the New Testament twice, and the Psalms twice. I, I know many of you read it now, and all my children started reading it. And my youngest son, John, when I used to go, I'd go sit on his bed every couple of weeks, and I'd sit down. I said, and so John had been reading this, and I, I'd go down and I said, John, do you think you're saved? He said, I don't know, Dad. And I didn't make a big deal about it. I would. I'd go back up, and it wasn't every two weeks, and it wasn't like on my calendar or something like that. But every so often, I'd go sit down on his bed, and, and I'd ask him if he was reading. He said, Yeah, Dad. And I, I said, You think you're, John, you're saved, John? And he said, I don't know. I don't know. This went on for probably over a year. And so I, I went down one time, and I, same, same story. I sat down, and I said, John, do you think you're saved? And he said, I, I don't know. I said, tell me what you think it is, John. And he said, I don't know. And I said, look, you've, you've read through your Bible now. I said, is there any part of it that you, you just refuse to believe? And he said, no. And I said, you need to be willing to do what Jesus said. Because the number one thing he told people was not, hey, you need to pray this prayer, you need to come to this church, you need to you know, start mowing the lawn, you need to show yourself, is this really cool person? He, he never said that. The number one thing he said is, follow me. Follow me. That was when... Um, John just said I can do that I can do that and there's many of you in this room where we build up this huge anticipation of, 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 of some conversion experience and yet the simple steps in the New Testament were just follow me Jesus said look if you want to follow me, you're, need, you're going to need to deny yourself and take up your cross and come follow me. He said it to tax gatherers like Matthew and Levi. It, 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 he, he, he's, he said it to whole crowds. He, he said it to the rich young ruler. It, it was the most often repeated instruction that he gave his follow me. And, its correspondence to that Passover Supper is amazing to me. In the second chapter of John's Gospel, John the Baptist looks at Jesus and he basically says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And from the time that he started his public ministry, there was an expectation of God showing up. There was an expectation of instruction there was an expectation of action in our lives. Now, having said that, I, ne- next time, like I told you, I- I'm, gonna, I'm gonna take the time to develop several different kinds of anticipation that we should have when we come to the table. I-, I think it's gonna be pretty good. But today, I wanna close our time together by just encouraging you to think about three obvious connections that I, I believe were intended by Jesus to come out of the Lord's table, especially in regard to the Passover. The first of them is this. When you come to take communion, when you come to the table, we are basically confessing that Jesus really is the Lamb. And because he died, we don't have to. He's the one that made it possible for us to avoid the calamity of the wrath of God. So that's the, the first thing that you're doing. The second thing that we're doing when we come to the table is that we are making, we're actually marking the doorposts of our lives. When we come down here, it's, there's an element of of a public part to it. Where when you come and you you, you take the bread that is is broken on that plate and you dip it into a chalice of wine, you're basically saying, this is the mark on the door of my life too. And, and so we're confessing that Jesus is the Lamb and second, we're marking the doorposts of our lives. But the third thing, I, I think, is something that has not gone through my mind that often. The third thing is that we're actually expecting and prepared to follow his direction. We're actually... In this moment, we're, we're actually doing something that's tackled, it's concrete. When you, when, you, when you actually start to put your head around the service, there's so much of it that we're asking you to think about. There's, we, we, you can respond by, by, by following the words or reading the creeds or when you pray. But you see, all of that is going on in your head. But when you come and partake of communion. It's something that you touch. It was was an event. It's supposed to be an experience. And in that, we can't miss the fact that we're actually expecting God to show us how to live. We're expecting him to lead out of us the testimony that Jesus said would be a part of our lives. You're going to be the salt of the earth, the light of the world the light of the world, the city on a hill that can never be hidden, that that is an event. And it's moving from your head into a physical experience. And you're watching others do the same thing over and over again. So that's part one. Next week we'll deal with part two in our communion. All right, questions. Wow. There must be some people missing today. That never happens. So, all right, I'm going to pray, and Zach's going to come back up. I, I, I hope that these two parts will put together in your mind a meaning for what it is we're doing. And I felt like today would just kind of get us a half step, and so I hope there's a little bit more clarity. Be sure to come next week and listen to what it is that we should be anticipating when we come to this table. Let's pray. Father, I, I, I know, I know, I just kind of exposed the tip of the iceberg. But what I ask is that your spirit will do something in our thinking. And just like a little boy that would shoot an arrow towards the sun, and no matter how strong the bow is or how strong the boy is, that arrow ultimately is going to lose its energy and drop lifelessly back to the earth but father i pray that these ideas would be taken by your spirit and pulled all the way to yourself that you would open our thinking to consider things that perhaps we've never really pondered aspects of this table that has probably become a little bit routine and the the elements of it just kind of perfunctory instead I, I pray that you would cause us to understand what is supposed to be happening. We know, Father, that this table is one that we would hold open to anyone that would profess to be a Christian. We, we would ask those that are not Christians to, to actually consider just whether it makes any sense at all that they would be doing it just because it's kind of ritualistic without a heart that is wed to it. And so I just pray that you would cause, perhaps, this communion today to mean more than anyone that we've ever known. You would flood our hearts and our minds with meaning. You would cause us to anticipate the direction that you promise us in our lives. Father, this is a diverse group. There's people in this room that have had a week that was so wonderful they can hardly imagine. And there's many that have not. They bring heavy hearts, difficulty. We pray that in this moment, the community of our worship would lift our hearts and our eyes to you. We thank you for these things, for we ask and pray them all in Jesus' good name. Amen.